Warning, the Our Voice podcast contains explicit language and may not be suitable for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. United Not Silence, the Our Voice podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Anthony Montrullo. I'm the head of video uh, production here at Our Voice. Uh, Sam Ronan is in Chicago at the People's Summit, so hopefully we're going to have him on next week. We're going to talk about uh, some of the stuff that he saw there, some of the people he talked to. Uh, should be some interesting stuff going on there. Uh, Adrian Higgins is sleeping, I think. So, <laughs> so I'm joined by uh, Ladonna Loki. Hello, the, everyone. Who's the head of uh, social media for Our Voice? <laughs> Thank um, you very much. Yeah, Ladonna, thanks for coming on. And we are going to talk about some news. Oh, um, so uh, a couple things I just wanted to go over. We have an interview uh, to play you guys. Uh, it's an interview I did with Stephen Jaffe. He is running for Nancy Pelosi's seat in the 12th District of California. So, uh, yeah, we talked for about 25 minutes. It was a really great talk. Uh, he's a really interesting guy. He has a he had a raven like sitting behind him as I was interviewing him. He's like he's like a bird guy. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it was super cool. Yeah, like, like a I, live raven. Just no, yeah, he had, he had he literally had like a perch behind him and like a like a giant fucking raven just like chilling behind him. Oh my god! I wonder if that's subliminal, like a Bernie, you know, Bernie Sanders. Kind of <laughs> I, no, I think he's just like a bird guy. He's got like a bunch of birds, so that's super cool. He should just uh, train them to do things. <laughs> he can use that to his advantage. Do my bidding. Yeah, really. Um, so he, yeah, so he's awesome. Um, so uh, you know, I I want to get in a quick plug for a. Uh, I, I guess he's a, a volunteer with the organization. His name is Max Carone. He is a uh, young organizer. He's twenty years old. Um, he's in Dayton, Ohio. So, you know, we're near Sam. He is, uh, he wanted me to read this. Uh, he's organizing an action against, uh, fracking on public lands in Ohio. So, uh, I'm just going to read what he, what he sent me. Uh, in Ohio, Governor Kasich currently holds the power to appoint members to the oil and gas commission that can give permits to drill in public lands and state parks. Uh, an amendment, HC 2241, to Ohio's budget bill, uh, HB 49, would transfer these powers to the President of the Senate and uh, Speaker. Uh, Rosenberg and Obhoff have both received copious campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry. Rosenberger received uh, $283,500 from the industry for his 2016 campaign, which is a hell of a lot of money for state. Uh, first state party, by the way. And Opoff received $187,581 in contributions uh, as well. Furthermore, 58 House members who voted yay on the budget bill received a combined $1.18 million in contributions from the industry. Which, by the way, this is all in the Ohio State uh, government. That That's a ton of fucking money. 
In response to this, statewide activists and progressive organizations, including Our Voice, uh, Ohio Student Association, Ohio Revolution, Dayton Indivisible for All, uh, Keep Wayne Wild, uh, WSU College Democrats, and many others pulled together to fight this legislation. They are holding a rally next Wednesday, June 14th at 1 p.m. in Columbus to demand Governor Kasich veto this amendment. Uh, the event is titled Hands Off Public Land, Rally to Protect Public Land from Fracking, uh, and they are expecting 200 to 300 plus attendees. Uh, not only do they plan to rally, but will also, but they will also have continued digital disruption actions, which will be a combination of phone banking and social media storms to flood uh, Governor Kasich's office, as well as local representatives to demand that they stop this terrible legislation. Uh, if you're in Ohio, please join them for this fight. Uh, this is another example that in order for the progressive movement to truly win, we must do more than be anti-Trump and resist. We must take the fight to the GOP at the local level and stop their attempts to destroy our planet for their fossil fuel puppet masters. So, yeah, uh, Max, uh, that's awesome. And I really hope you guys get a good turnout and can get something done on that because that's super, super fucked up that they take that one. I, I, I mean, just for context, for anyone listening... Cory Booker took $383,000 from the pharma industry for his, his Senate re-election campaign, and he still sold people out. He sold, you know, the people out and voted against Bernie's drug bill. So he that was only 383000 So, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to buy off a national senator, but these people are getting almost as much in a state house just to pass this fracking through. So, I mean, clearly the fossil fuel industry understands that public tide is turning on fracking and people are starting to understand what the fuck it does to the environment and to their water and digital destruction. I like that term. That's a new one for me. That's cool, but you yeah. know, I've heard some people talk about that. Maybe we need to actually raise the salaries of politicians because so, you know, the salaries are what they are when they go into office and some of these state uh, rep, you know, positions only get like 50 or 75,000, but these guys are getting enriched while they're in there with all these side deals. If we somehow made it illegal for them to get involved in that stuff, but actually gave them a higher wage, you know, maybe it would, I don't know, attract a different sort of person um, yeah. or bring a little more integrity to what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the it's between that or, I mean, and my, you know, what I, I would hope to see in the future and it's going to be nearly impossible to pass uh, because it, it's directly counterintuitive to what they're trying to do, but uh, it's publicly financed elections. This way, right. they don't—they're legally prohibited from accepting money from these companies, uh, and we wouldn't be able. We wouldn't. People like that wouldn't be compelled to even run for office because they're like, ah, oh, well, there's no money in it. Right. If you couple, yeah, if we couple, you know, publicly funded elections and a ban on uh, accepting, you know lobbyist money corporate money and a ban on uh the kind of the the kind of congress to lobbyist pipeline like you're not allowed to work as a lobbyist after you've been in congress make a law like well, that and even just the conflict of interest that you find out about in some of these investment deals and i think they'd have to be pretty specific with the laws because a lot of times it'll be like a brother winds up getting rich off of a land deal that they were responsible for, you know, somehow making a decision on. I mean, it, you know, it goes into family ties and stuff. Yeah. Kind of like and... Joe Manchin's daughter, who is the uh, CEO <laughs> of, of Milan, who just, you know, totally price gouged people 
who need EpiPens, which is like people that will literally die if they don't have this little epinephrine pen for allergic reactions. But yeah, so insidious. (laughs) (laughs) And he, of course, voted against the, you know, the make drugs cheaper bill, among the million other horrible things Joe fucking Manchin votes for. I mean, never have I I seen someone even be primary more than him. It's not as though you don't want people to be able to to earn a living, but I, I think when they're going to these roles specifically to enrich themselves, when they go in, somebody goes in and, you know, they're making a hundred thousand a year and they go out and they're worth ten million, there's a problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um so I just want to get through the rest of the intro and then we'll we'll get into the episode. Um so yeah, we have an interview with Stephen Jaffe. I mentioned that. Uh, definitely go out to that rally June 14th if you're in the Ohio area, 1 p.m. Uh, it says in Columbus. It doesn't say where, but uh, I'm sure you could find it. It was, uh, I think it was like Hands Off Public Land, it was called. So I'm sure they have a Facebook group and all that. We can post it on the Our Voice yeah, page. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll, share the, we'll share those links around because he's he's a volunteer with us and he's, he's doing some good stuff out there. Um, oh, uh, great news out of the U.K., uh, Theresa May and her infinite wisdom calling a snap general election uh, cost herself the majority. So, <laughs> and Labor got their biggest victory, I believe it said since 1945 in terms of a, a total swing of seats. They ended up with 40 more, uh, they, they ended up with 26 more seats and Labor lost like 13 seats or something like that. So a historic win for Labor, which just so happened to coincide with them having literally the most progressive platform of any Western nation, you know, go figure. I yeah, I, I'm sure. It's, I'm sure it's a coincidence, and it's like Brexit vote. I, the funniest thing about Corbyn winning and like inspiring all these young people, I, I think it said he got something like seventy-two percent of the of the of millennials to turn out to vote, and like he obviously won a massive uh, percentage of them. Right. There's still people in the in the U.S. establishment left that are like freaking out trying not to give him any credit for this and blame it on Theresa may or blame it on like fucking joy, <laughs> joy reed was like going off on a tangent because people were like uh, kind of you know giving it to her like joking around with her about how you know about how this is essentially the same thing we saw with bernie and you know maybe well, this doesn't fit the, the mainstream you know the establishment democratic narrative right now which is Bernie Kratz can't win, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't fund Bernie Kratz. They don't back them. You know, you have somebody like Quist. They say, oh, well, you know, Bernie Kratz aren't winning. And so, you know, therefore it it um, underscores the strategy that they feel they need to go with, which is, you know, backing centrists and, and people who are all about the corporate money. So yeah. but it's clear they, they re- don't want the message. I don't think they really even think that they can't win. I think they want that narrative out there so that they can, right. you know, continue the fucking gravy train that they're they're on but they they know they can win they know they can win more than a you know centrist like hillary or like any of their you know the party orthodoxy who doesn't inspire anybody to turn out to vote it was clear before you know the election before the primaries if you looked at data and google trends i mean gosh hillary had you know people and Facebook's board and everything. She she had a team. She knew what was happening in the digital world. They knew the numbers. They knew what they were looking at, and they forced it on us anyway. So you get what you get. Yeah, but no, yeah. So that was great. Uh, Corbin, I, I love him. He's awesome. He's way to the left of Bernie. Even uh, I, we can only hope one day to have a politician in the U.S. Uh, like Corbin. 
What um, a message to Trump. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. And um, so, and they're in a weird spot right now because, you know, the conservatives, they still have a majority, uh, but they don't have a majority in order to govern. They don't have enough seats to actually govern. And they're in like a hung parliament right now. And it's really weird. And like, there could be coalitions. So we'll see what happens with that. We don't know what's going to happen yet. But um, needless to say, that was a massive blow uh, to, you know, extreme right wing fascism. And it makes uh, you wonder about the potential for a draft Bernie people's party, you know, yeah. some of these other movements that are happening that they might actually have legs at some point. No, and it, and it really shows that people, given the choice of socialism and fascism, are going to choose socialism every time. And, you know, enthusiastic. Especially millennials. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a lot of hope for our, our, you know, the generation that's coming up right now. <laughs> um, uh, if you guys are listening and you like what you've been hearing so far uh, with our show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Uh that really helps us move up on the iTunes charts and helps us in the algorithm and helps us get heard by more people. Uh, so, and also make sure you are following us on our Facebook page yes. and on Twitter at our voice USA. Yep. Uh, also we now have a Twitter for the podcast. It's at our voice podcast and you can email us at, at our voice podcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments, uh, and eventually we're going to gather enough of those and we'll read them out on the show. So, um, yeah, hit us up on all the social media platforms and stay tuned for our interview with Stephen Jaffe. Okay. So, uh, we're joined today on the podcast by Stephen Jaffe, uh, he is a lawyer who's primarying Nancy Pelosi for her house seat in California's 12th district. Uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're running against uh, Representative Pelosi in the 12th district. Uh, it, you know, just to start, why does Representative Pelosi need to be primaried, and why are you the person to do it? Answer to the first question is that it appears to me and uh, many other people that she is um, seriously out of touch with her constituents here in the 12th District. Um, she has taken on such tremendous national prominence that I think her perception and self-perception is that of a national political figure, and she has forgotten uh, essentially about her constituents here in San Francisco. Um, listening to her position on issues and listening at the same time to the voters here in San Francisco, uh, I get two different messages. Uh, I can be more specific on, on specific issues, but that, that is the short answer. I think that she uh, may have forgotten who elects her and sends her back to Congress for 30 years. <laughs> Definitely. So, uh, you know, speaking to that, what, what, are, what would you say are the major differences between uh, yourself and Representative Pelosi in terms of policy positions? Uh, well, um, the two that immediately come to mind, um, the biggest issue, I think, in this election, I certainly don't know what it will be a year from now because there's a lot of time to go by. But at the present time, I think the b biggest issue is, is health care 
Uh, that's been been the biggest issue uh, on the table for a long time. Uh, I am not talking about um, our president's current legal troubles, which, of course, is uh, looming over everything. But um, leaving that aside, the health care issue is the biggest issue. I am um, a uh, pretty uh, fervent and, and strong advocate of single-payer health care, um, not some hybrid version of it. Um, I think it's, it's the only thing, um, really, that will solve the problems that face um, the U.S. right now. And Ms. Pelosi is not. She does a very nice dance around um, her answers when she has asked that question. But um, I've tried to make it my practice in this very, very young campaign to answer questions capable of being answered yes or no with the words yes or no. And when you ask Ms. Pelosi, are you in favor of single-payer health care, you get a five-minute speech, uh, maybe a sentence or two at the end, uh, saying that it's last, last time I heard her say it was yesterday. Uh, actually, it was in person. I went to the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco where she gave a talk, and uh, she gave a long speech about how, um, actually on an irrelevant subject, but when she turned to single-payer, she said it's too expensive. Instead, we need to fix Obamacare. She talks about um, options, public options. Um, I don't really understand what she means by that. Option to what? Um, I don't know what she means by public option. She never defines that. Um, and the other thing she says uh, often is, I was carrying signs for single payer in the 1970s with a baby stroller. Well, that's fine for the 1970s. But um, we're in 2017, and she's not carrying signs and baby strollers now. She's opposed to it. So that's one big difference between us. Um, the other really big issue, uh, I think, between us is I think it is very important to try to reform the Democratic Party. Uh, I think the Democratic Party has become a party of elitists and corporatists. Um, and that needs to stop. It needs to turn its direction um, back to pay more attention to the working people, the middle class, and those who struggle for, for survival. And Ms. Pelosi and her um, uh, other elitists um, don't want to do that. They want to hold on to their power. And the way I propose to try to take the party back is to uh, two things. One, eliminate superdelegates. I think superdelegates uh, are a device. They came into existence in 1972 when George McGovern was nominated. The party uh, elitists didn't like that, so they installed superdelegates to try to take care of situations where somebody very popular that they didn't like looked like they're going to get the nomination. Well, that happened. That, that happened again in 2016. As far as I'm concerned, Bernie Sanders won the Democratic uh, nomination. Uh, but he didn't get it because it was more or less fixed by the DNC. Uh, and the proof of that is uh, you don't have to look farther than this lawsuit pending in Florida right now that um, a lawyer named Jared Beck has filed against DNC. And um, in a motion to dismiss, I don't want to get too legal here, the DNC lawyers actually stood up and argued to the judge with a straight face, we have the right, essentially, to lie, cheat, and steal, and fix the primaries. We're a private club. We're a political club. And you, the court, there's nothing you can do about it because you don't have jurisdiction. Um, 
I'm not making that up. Oh yeah, uh, no, I, I, we actually interviewed Jared last week. We had a great uh, interview with him. We talked all about the uh, <laughs> some of the ridiculous things that the DNC lawyer claimed, and that, and you know, in trying to get it. That's just dismissed. what they're saying, and I can tell you, having been a lawyer for 46 years, um, that's absurd. It uh, it offends common sense. It offends justice. And if you really think about what what the DNC lawyers are saying, Anthony, mm-hmm. they are saying. Yeah, we're going to hold the primaries. Um, yeah, we know the Democratic voters uh, go to the polls with a reasonable expectation their votes are going to count, but they're really not. We reserve the right <clears throat> excuse me, to go in the back room and change their votes and fix the primaries, in which case I say, um, I being Stephen, why bother to hold the primaries if, if it's not going to count? Yeah. I mean, why go through the sham and the charade of holding primaries? So um, that's that's one of the ways eliminate the super delegates. The other way is the Democratic Party has a rule that gives a presumptive endorsement of any sitting incumbent who wants to run again. So if you've had an office and you want to keep running for it, you are automatically endorsed by the Democratic Party. Um, there's some minor procedural rules to change that, but uh, they are very difficult to invoke. Uh, that's wrong, too. Uh, if somebody is an incumbent and wants to be reelected to the same position, whether it's a school board or a board of supervisors or county commission, they ought to be required to stand on their record that they made during the last term they served, not just get an automatic endorsement from the party. So those are the two main reasons that I, I would hope to take back the party. I could talk to you all week about what happened to the party, but uh, <laughs> sure you want to move on. Well, no, that's that's I didn't actually know that. That's very interesting that they automatically endorse incumbents. And I mean, I, I do you think that's why we see people like Representative Pelosi and Diane Feinstein who oppose, you know, things like single payer, which eighty percent of the base supports, yet they still are just automatically assumed to be not only the you know uh, you know presu- presumptive uh, candidate in their district, but in Nancy Pelosi's case, she's you know the the uh, minority leader of the of the House. So, I, it, yeah, I, well, she you know she's wearing two hats here. She's wearing her congressional representative hat representing the 12th district, mm-hmm. and she's wearing her minority leader hat. And I don't think she puts on the uh, congressional representative hat too often. <laughs> uh, she's off giving events in in, in Florida uh, a few days ago. Um, in which the only black man in the audience was thrown out, by the way. Yeah, I've, so I've written about that on my uh, my website, my campaign website. Um, sound familiar for somebody else in 2016's elections, throwing out black people from events? Yeah. Um, so um, I think she needs to come pay a little more attention to her constituents, hold some town halls where she talks to really the people who elect her. Yeah, I mean, I, and I saw her... Uh, her- at that town hall you're referring to the other day, I think it was a closed town hall. They weren't allowing people in, or they were, it was it was a limited engagement. You could, it wasn't just open to the public, from what I understand. Of course, uh, that's that's how they do these things, and they select the audience, they select the questions, and this guy apparently was sitting there live streaming it with his phone, mm-hmm. and they threw him out. Unbelievable. Well, and- I think his name was uh, Elijah Manley. 
I believe so. Yeah, I, I I did read about him a little bit. Um, well, you know, you mentioned healthcare, and uh, you know, the ACA. I mean, and I think most you know sane progressives agree that you know it was it was an it was an improvement from what we had, but it's still not nearly enough. It still leaves twenty eight million Americans without coverage. Why do you think that Representative Pelosi is okay with settling for the ACA, which you know, as I say, is a plan that uh, leaves still 28 million Americans uninsured and doesn't address uh, price capping or high deductibles and high, you know, high, pre- high premiums and things like that. Why is she okay with settling for that? Why, why do you think that she doesn't support single payer? I can answer that in five words. Look at her donor list. <laughs> Ms. Pelosi, her second largest group of donors were healthcare providers. They have a strong stake in perpetuating the uh, system that's currently in place, particularly the ones that operate for profit. So uh, a single-payer health care system would essentially put them out of the profit business. So she does, that's why she has a strong stake in it. Yeah. I, think it's as, I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. She'll never say that. She'll never say that, but uh, I believe that is the primary reason. It's going to get interesting because uh, HR six seven six already has one hundred and ten co sponsors in the House, which is a record for yeah. Well, a, guess who's not a co sponsor in the House? <laughs> yeah, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker, That's the correct. minority why leader of the House. Co- yeah, you know why is she talking about supporting single payer in the nineteen seventies and not co sponsor um, Representative Conyers' bill in twenty seventeen? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, shifting gears a little bit, uh, after the, the disastrous results of the 2016 election, uh, Representative Pelosi held a live town hall on CNN. Uh, so at that town hall, a young progressive named Trevor Hill asked, uh, Representative Pelosi a very nuanced question about, uh, the failings of unfettered free market capitalism and talked about how people growing up in this generation and my, and, you know, my generation understand that. Capitalism isn't the be-all, end-all answer to all societal problems. Uh, you know, some areas of our government and society call for elements of socialism to help run the country better and for the greater good. But she was quick to reiterate, uh, you know, we're capitalists. That's just the way it is. Uh, in your yes, opinion... Yes, she said that, and that was another sham town hall. CNN, I tried for weeks to find out where it was going to be, who was going to ask the questions, was she going to get the questions beforehand, and um, how was the audience selected? But Trevor Hill turned in a, one question, then asked another. That's that's why he sandbagged her with it. She wasn't ready for it. Um, right. You're absolutely right. Uh, one of the things I, I have written and said frequently is um, everybody in America is a socialist to some degree. Uh, our military, our police forces, our fire departments, our libraries, virtually every government function is a function of socialism. That is the definition of socialism, pooling the common money for the common good of the people. Uh, socialism is, is a maligned word and, and wrongly maligned. Um, and there are, there are segments of the economy in which capitalism is appropriate. But um, health care is not one of them. And some government functions have to be run by the government. Uh, the, one I, the one I talk about is the fire department. You can't have a private company running the fire department because you would wind up with uh, 
the more you pay the private company, the faster we come to your house when it's on fire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because we get more profits. So um, one of the things I say is we are all socialists, whether you like it or not or whether you believe it or not. That is the fact of life in America. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting just the marketing campaign that the that some of the Democrats like Representative Pelosi have kind of partaken in to make socialism a dirty word, but I don't think people understand even the internet to some extent is a form of socialism until they get rid of net neutrality. I mean, it, you know, yeah. that's, that's well. The, the fact thing. is, what people try to do is they try to equate socialism with uh, dictatorial communism, yeah. and those are two different, completely things. One has nothing to do with the other. Socialism is completely compatible with democracy, mm-hmm. and I guess I can't say that often enough, but um, people who think the word is a bad word, they don't understand that. All the countries in Europe that, that have socialist systems are democracies. They elect their, their uh, government, and there's no reason we can't do the same. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, I do want to bring up a somewhat controversial topic within the Democratic Party, but I know a lot of progressives are very disappointed with the way that the party establishment kind of has a blind loyalty on this on this issue. Uh, what are your thoughts on what uh, Representative Pelosi calls the unbreakable bond between the U.S. and Israel? Because she doesn't seem to have any kind of a nuanced opinion about uh, the, the right-wing government of Netanyahu and the way that they... Uh, act and you know in general so what, what what are your thoughts on her on her opinions on that um well i can tell you what my opinions are yeah. i really don't have any thoughts on her opinions <laughs> <laughs> um i am I'm, I'm jewish i'm what's called a secular jew i'm not religious at all but i am i feel a very deep personal bond with with uh, my jewish background my culture my heritage and my history So um, that question, you know, is difficult. But what I think is that um, Israel is not always right, and the Palestinians are not always wrong. And um, I think we have to judge the actions of Israel uh, by the same moral standards that every other nation is judged. Uh, If Israel does something that is provably wrong, we have to step up and say, that's wrong, don't do that just as we say the same things about Hamas and al-Qaeda and ISIS when they commit horrible things. I don't think Israel resorts to the same tactics, of course, that, mm. that those terrorist organizations do, but I don't think they're, they're absolutely purely innocent. Um, I do understand that existence in Israel is different from existence in the United States. Um, Israel is a nation literally, with enemies at its front door, literally. And, and we are not. We are insulated by Mexico, Canada, and two huge oceans. So we don't have the same mindset that they do. On the other hand, um, there are plans and ways to bring the Palestinians into a negotiation and a solution, I think, um, which takes care of their rights, their civil rights and human rights, as people, without derogating the rights of Israel. So um, I, I don't, I guess, I don't know whether I'm answering your question. I'm doing the best I can. No, yeah, no, that, that's great, yeah. Um, um, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, uh, you know, shifting gears a little bit, uh, Representative Pelosi has been serving in Congress for nearly 30 years. 
Uh, in that time, she's only faced a handful of primary challengers, with her 2016 challenger coming closest to unseating her, only getting 19% of the vote. Considering that, uh, what do you think your chances are against her in a primary, and why do you think maybe that this year might be a different scenario uh, coming off the heels of the 2016 election? Um, I think my chances are very good. Um, I'm, I'm a, I take risks, but I'm not nuts. Mm-hmm. So I did not jump into this, you know, intending to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a long way to go here. And I think 2017 and 2018, I think uh, the tide has shifted. I think she is vulnerable for the reasons that I described because of her disconnection with her constituents. Uh, I think there is a tremendous rising wave of progressivism in the Democratic Party, largely created and fueled by what happened to Bernie Sanders. Uh, I'm, I'm a Berniecrat. I worked very hard for Bernie Sanders. I gave him a lot of my money. I was recruited by the national campaign. I went to Nevada to supervise uh, the amazingly chaotic Nevada caucuses uh, and witnessed um, stuff going on there with my own eyes that um, Democratic uh, Party elites still deny happened. I saw it um, with my own eyes. Yeah. So I do think there, there is a tide of change. The, the uh, guy who ran against her last time ran as a third-party candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great guy. He's endorsed me. His name is Preston Pikus. And um, I have, in five or six weeks here of my campaign, raised more money than he did during his entire one-year campaign against Nancy Pelosi. Wow. Uh, I have over 1,000 individual donors. Um, some of them give me um, small, a lot of small donations, some bigger ones. But I also have a number of donations of $1, Anthony. Yeah. And the reason I get that is I get emails from people all over the United States, which is another kind of discussion, and they say, I'm, I want to help you, but I'm unemployed, I'm broke, I'm disabled, I can't give you anything. And I say to them, send me a dollar. Make a statement. Go on record as making a statement. Get your email out there, and nobody knows what's going to happen in the next year. So um, I'm, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. I know it's an uphill climb. Ms. Pelosi is fabulously wealthy, uh, personally and also raises a lot of money, millions and millions or hundreds of millions of dollars for the Democratic Party. But when she talks about all the money that she raises for the Democratic Party, you have to ask a follow-up question. Where do you get that money? Who's giving you the money? Because most of the money she's raising is corporate money. Mm -hmm. that's, That's a big deal. I'm not getting any donations from corporations at all. Not one, not a cent. And so far, I haven't had taken any PAC money. So um, there's a difference. There's a qualitative difference between how she runs her, her uh, campaigns and how I run mine. And I think that's going to make a difference, plus the wave of this, this young, progressive uh, enthusiasm and anger. I should say a lot of people are, I uh, can't say what I want to say, very angry. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, more broadly, you know, you're you're a proud Democrat and Bernie or Berniecrat and you know Bernie supporter. Uh, like Bernie, you're trying to change the party from within rather than running as a third party candidate. Do you do you think that the Democratic Party can ultimately be saved 
uh, considering some of the stuff we've seen them do in the past to, to stifle progressive candidates? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I, I do think it can be saved. Um, my theory on what happened to the Democratic Party, I can tell you in just a few sentences. Um, it used to be that um, the Republicans occupied, I'd say, about the, the right one-third of the political spectrum, and the Democrats occupied the left one-third of the political spectrum, and most elections were decided by the middle, which were either Republican or uh, Democrat, but people they were of, of moderate political views. And they, those were the swing voters, okay? And what happened is when Ronald Reagan was elected, the Republican Party started drifting and shifting to the right. And it's continued that up until today, until we have this uh, incredible occupant at the White House. But when that happened, that left kind of a void in the middle, that middle third of undecideds. And I think the Democrats, uh, either intentionally or just by the laws of political physics, moved into that middle third and started embracing some of the corporate interests that used to be embraced solely by the Republicans. That's how we got where we are today. I think if FDR were around and he saw um, Ms. Pelosi and people like her accepting these hundreds of millions of dollars from corporations and um, opposing um, laws and changes in the Democratic Party that are more addressed to the working people and the poor people and those who struggled, um, they would they would protest. So um, I want to hearken back to the days um, when the Democratic Party really had a much more distinct identity as a progressive party, because Roosevelt had it, and the party used to have it, and that's why I, th I think the party can have it again. I think we have to eliminate the mechanisms that exist now, like superdelegates, like automatic endorsements, like corporate uh, contributions um, to change it. But that's certainly part of my goals and something uh, when I'm elected, uh, I will go after fervently. Absolutely. Great. So, you know, just in closing, how can people uh, help spread the word and, and support the campaign? Where can they find you on, on the various platforms? Uh, well, um, I'm not, I'm moderately technical technically savvy, but uh, certainly not as, as much as most people, most younger people. I have um, four social media outlets that I, that I know are, are very active. I have a web page, which is Jeffy for Congress with the number four uh, dot com. I have a Facebook page with the same name. I have a Twitter account and I have an Instagram account. And there is lots and lots of information on there. Um, the other way is to, um, and it's the hardest thing for a candidate to do, but I have to do it. Donations matter. Um, money, uh, for the time being, is the fuel that runs political campaigns. So uh, it's donate.jaffeforcongress.com. Donate.jaffeforcongress.com. And I would appreciate it if people would give whatever they can, including the ones who really can't I ask them to send a dollar, just a dollar, to make their statement of support, because that makes a difference. Excellent, yeah. And hopefully we can get a bunch of people like you in there so we can uh, move towards publicly financing elections so none of us ever have to worry about all this stuff again. Yes, yes I, I'm in favor of that, and, and that goes along with the, uh, the Citizens United issue. 
I think it's one of the worst decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court since Dred Scott. And boy, there and there have been a lot of bad ones, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Great. So, you know, I, I really want to thank you for joining us, Stephen. Um, I, you know, I can't speak for the whole organization, but I'm sure most of them would agree when uh, when I say that we're really behind you and we, we, we hope you end up uh, succeeding in defeating Representative Pelosi because beyond just the victory of getting you in Congress, I think that's a big uh, message to send to the, to the uh, Democratic establishment. That yeah, I think there, there are going to be a lot of surprises at the end of 2018 when, when a lot of these, uh, I call them corporate Democrats, mm -hmm. uh, or sometimes I call them Dinos, D-I-N-Os, Democrats in name only. <laughs> yeah. Um, when they're unseated by, by, you know, progressive candidates who challenge them, I think I think this is the year that, or next year is the year it's going to happen. I think the tide is changing, so yeah. I guess I'll end with that. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, excellent. And you know, thank you again so much for your time. You've been really generous with, generous with your time, and um, yeah, I, I thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. I'll be glad to come back and answer questions anytime you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have you on a little closer to the election next year. Thanks so much. All right, thanks. Have a good one. Okay, so we are back. I uh, hope you enjoyed our interview with Stephen Jaffe. Um, so, let's get into the news for the week. Uh, a lot of shit happened this week. <laughs> um, Comey Day! Yeah, really. <laughs> Nothing more in the spotlight than the James Comey thing. Uh, literally was on every channel for two days straight. Not a single piece of uh, UK election coverage, but whatever, you know. Well, even leading up to it, I mean, it was so much fun on social media. Everybody, uh, the uh, the Comey entrance memes. Um, there was one, uh, my favorite was a Beyonce lemonade, you know, like Comey was going to walk in with the baseball bat and just smash everything. <laughs> that was so much fun. Everybody well, just anticipating getting the popcorn out for it. His entrance was a little disappointing after all that. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, the thing with the, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through uh, a CNN article that kind of highlights the 10 important things we learned from the, the hearing. But the thing that I took away was that like, we didn't really learn necessarily anything we didn't know already, but it is important that we got it all on the record um, for various reasons moving forward. But let me, I'm going to go through the uh, CNN article and we will uh, maybe kind of just take it point by point and talk about <clears throat> the things that they highlighted. Uh, so, 10 things we learned from the Comey hearing. Uh, Trump's request of Comey may have put him under scrutiny. So, uh, Comey was clear that the president was never an explicit subject of their Russia probe, but he also said that Trump's private comments urging him to drop the Flynn probe led him to tell his Justice Department colleagues that they needed to be careful. Comey also noted that he had already provided his memos of his private conversations to Trump and that they were subject uh, of the special counsel's probe. Earlier in the hearing, uh, Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr asked if the federal investigation could find evidence of criminality not related to the 2016 election of potential collusion with Russia. Sure, Comey said, uh, in any complex investigation, when you start turning over rocks, sometimes you find things that are unrelated to the primary investigation that are criminal in nature. So <laughs> Comey right away, just it, it's super 
not subtly throwing shade like the his whole <laughs> testimony which i kind of kind of loved it was super funny uh to me um so it, it it seems like from what comey's saying is that he wasn't even really tr- thinking about looking into trump but trump is such a fucking idiot as usual <laughs> that he shot shoots himself in the foot and gets him to an it, it, like it's it from what it seems like he says he wasn't even really the subject of a probe but him being super sketchy and being like, you know, I bring him into the office and making everyone leave and being like, you know, I hope we can put this thing behind us. Um, <laughs> seems to have <laughs> that whole like kiss the ring mafia kind of. Um, <laughs> you need to be, you know, part of the family and loyal to. You know, it's just clear that Trump had no idea. Um, you know, the ramifications of of what he was doing. I don't think he was thinking about the legality of of it at all. I think he was just thinking about himself. And Comey, from the get-go, had basically labeled Trump in his head as someone who was dishonest and untrustworthy. So from from the very beginning, he decided to document everything with memos. He'd never done that with Obama. He'd never done that, he said, with anybody else. And so, you know, it's clear going in what his opinion was of Trump, and then it was only made worse by by all these actions. Yeah. And nobody was stupid enough before Trump to sit to so blatantly like and suspiciously try to obstruct justice like he's never had a need to well well, i mean maybe with one exception which we'll we'll actually get to in this in this thing another interesting thing that came up um so uh the second thing actually said that he thought that kushner and sessions kind of tried to linger like they maybe had the impression that they shouldn't walk away and then you know they were reluctantly left so So, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't watch Comey's entire testimony. I, I find those things so dry, even if it's an interesting thing like that. Oh, it's I was so glued long. to it. I, I was glued to it. And, you know, because I had read a lot about Comey, you know, prior to all of this with the email investigation. And it was clear to me that this is someone who cares about justice. He's made a couple of questionable decisions. I think we can all, you know, admit that. But I think he's somebody that cares about justice. And, you know, uh, they're supposed to be apolitical, but really it said that he's been a lifelong Republican. Um, so you know, just going into this, I think he was someone that, that cared about doing the right thing and got put in a really tough position. I think he actually always, to some extent, has tried to do the right thing, even with the Hillary thing. Yeah. And he actually gives a really uh, interesting justification for that in this in this hearing, which we're going to get to. Um, it never struck struck me that he was particularly partisan one way or the other. He just, whenever he feels like somebody is trying to do something underhanded, he feels the need to call it out. And, you know, right. I'm not saying he's necessarily some, you know, great hero of, of mine, but, you know, I, I can't fault him for doing what he feels is right. Um, I really do think he looks to the law and yeah. there was an emotion on his face. It was clear to me also that, he cared that he was upset about being fired. He cared about the way in which it happened, that he couldn't say goodbye to his colleagues in the way that he wanted to, that it was so abrupt. It was almost, I thought, tearful at the beginning yeah. that, that he was upset about his career ending this way. And so it was kind of, I felt a little bit sad for him at times. And I also felt like he kind of relished in it eventually where he was like, I'm going to fucking <laughs> nail this motherfucker for doing what he did. <laughs> I do think he got into it later. Like, you yeah. You know, in, in the reasoning behind it, he said, I'm going to take him at his word that it was related to Russia. So. So also, you know, an interesting thing 
to come out of the the hearings, which I actually didn't even expect we'd hear about. Uh, Clinton's emails was not a quote nothing burger, which is my least favorite phrase to come out of 2016, <laughs> by the way. Um, so uh comey was not only critical of republicans during his testimony gop reactions were quick to highlight his less than flattering comments about former attorney general loretta lynch and her handling of the investigation into hillary clinton's use for private email server uh he testified that lynch pressed comey not to call the fbi's clinton email a quote investigation but instead to call it a quote matter uh which is ridiculous <laughs> well and he noted that it didn't matter afterwards anyway because people called it an investigation so. yeah uh comey complied telling reporters that it was a matter but in the long run he said it contributed to his urge to distance the fbi from obama's justice department because of integrity fears uh clinton in one of her first public appearances since the election argued that the incident was a quote nothing burger um it may not be as worrisome to some as the potential of Russian collusion with the U.S. campaign, but Comey again made it clear uh, Thursday that it was a problem. That's CNN editorializing, but um, yeah, and so they couldn't I, go to them. Yeah, that's that's interesting because they clear they made they tried so hard to make that seem like it was nothing, but it was at at best even if they didn't talk about anything, which uh, you know, Slick Willie on a plane <laughs> jumping off of his plane to get onto Loretta Lynch's plane. The optics of that were just yeah, the, uh, yeah. All that's right. Even if they didn't up, say yeah. anything at all, like related to her investigation, super fucking sketchy. But I'm sure they, in 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 his way, in Clinton's way, he probably was like, you know, <laughs> much like Trump, I was like, I'm sure maybe I, I hope you can see your way into clearing the, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked at all if that was the that was the verbiage he used, you know. Who does this? Who meets on a tarmac like uh, I, you <laughs> in know, secret? It's like super. Yeah, I think there's. It's funny. There's a lot of parallels between <laughs> Trump and Bill because I mean they clearly have no problem cornering people and making them feel uncomfortable by being like, you know, I hope you can. Uh, um, yeah. Well, that was the joke. I think uh, several people online talked about. You know, Comey didn't want to be alone with Trump, and now he knows. <laughs> you know how every other woman in the world feels. So. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Which, you know, funnily enough, Bill uh, can kind of sympathize with Trump, which is maybe <laughs> why they were such good friends before they, they were running against each other, before the, you know, two families were running against each other. Um, so that was interesting. You know, that that was something I actually did not expect to come out of the hearings, but I, sh- I should have actually, because I, I, I had to have known that the Republicans weren't going to try to ask any probing questions about Trump or Russia. They, they, they well, had you know- to... That was another bizarre part of it, and I don't know if you were going to get into this, but McCain, McCain's questioning was so bizarre because he he tries to conflate, uh, you know, the issue of the emails and and Comey dropping that and keeping up with looking at Trump, which Comey very clearly explained uh, one investigation was done and the other wasn't. And McCain almost came off as confused or senile in his questioning. It was uh, actually somebody that I used to respect. It was kind of a sad moment. Like, dude, you need to step aside now. You're you're not making yeah. sense. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, unfortunately, John McCain, I think, threw his integrity out the window a long time ago when he decided to pick Sarah Palin. And this is running mate. Yeah, around um, that election time, I think he just lost it. Yeah, because he used to kind of be known as a guy who would come across the aisle, or he was like, you know, not he was not a, a, a party line guy, but um, common sense person. Yeah, but 
Yeah, but but what we know about Washington, I think, has shifted very drastically in just you know eight nine years. Um, maybe it has something to do with the fact that Democrats lost eleven hundred seats in the last nine years. I don't know. <laughs> tends 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 to complicate issues, but um. <laughs> so also um. Trump's uh, Twitter problem hurt him a lot. Uh, so Comey said Thursday that it was Trump's tweeted implicit threat that it that they had uh, that he had taped conversations uh, that directly led him to provide the content of the memos to a friend who disseminated it to the media. Uh, so that was the other big part that Comey is a leaker. <laughs> <laughs> that was what Trump. That was the immediate thing he tweeted. Um, <laughs> And they 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 put in uh, Trump's tweet here, which was when he said uh, back in May, uh, James Comey better hope that there are no quote unquote. Ta- I, by the way, he uses quotes on words that don't need to be quoted. I don't know what the fuck that is. It's such a he weird. He just randomly picks a word and put quotes around. He's so dumb. Like what? <laughs> so okay, I'll try to get through one of his tweets without. But he's such a child. Uh, James Comey better hope that there are no quote unquote tapes of our conversations before he starts leaking to the press. Maybe he's just really smart and like knew that they're not actual tapes; they're like recordings, like digital recordings. So that's why he said "quote unquote" tapes. I'm giving him way too much credit. That's <laughs> so not what he, yeah. <laughs> he does that all the time. He'll say well, like alleged so leakers. Hopeful. He says, you know, Lordy, I hope there are tapes uh, during his testimony. <laughs> yeah, no, that, and, that's the fourth point. Um, but I heard today on Twitter that they've announced that they are going to depose Trump. Um, you know, under oath. Mueller's and so him, yeah. we'll see if they ask him this question and if he winds up having to answer as to whether or not there are actually tapes. I, he has such a trouble with honesty that it seems almost certain that if he's under oath, he's going to perjure himself. Oh, absolutely. Oh my God. He, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't wait to watch him squirm under oath. Um, I really hope, and I don't know how that investigation goes or, and if it's just like Mueller that gets to, uh, question him or if like the, the senate gets to question him or what i would love to see fucking bernie up there like hitting him with questions the way they do in the confirmation <laughs> hearings can you imagine well, remember when when bill clinton was deposed we did get to see video of it eventually you know it depends on what the meaning of word is is just stuff like that <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true I, I would imagine oh, but, no, but you know he didn't he only got questioned by ken Starr, i think so so it's not that any kind of members of congress get to right um, right, which is a shit show it, in itself. Be, yeah. <laughs> I'll be good with that. Um, so and so, but just more t- about that tweet. Uh, <clears throat> Comey, in dramatic fashion, said he woke up in the middle of the night, read Trump's tweet, and knew that he had to do something. Uh, his stated goal was to win the appointment of a special counsel, uh, and it worked. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed Robert Mueller special, uh, special counsel one week after the Trump administration pinned Comey's firing on Rosenstein. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night on Monday night because it didn't dawn on me originally that there might be corroboration for our conversation. There might be a tape, Comey said. Uh, And my judgment was that I needed to get that out into the public square. So I asked a friend of mine to share the content of the memo with a reporter. Uh, Now those memos are part of Mueller's investigation. So Comey proving again that he's way smarter than, I mean, not that this is much of an accomplishment, but way fucking smarter uh, than Trump when it comes to this sort of thing. Cause well, and so he made these memos, you know, unclassified purposely so that I guess they could be released, but it, it sounds like now Trump's lawyer is trying to sue 
um, or, or putting in some legal action against him. And I, I think I do think there's a valid debate as to, you know, he was on the clock when he created those memos. They were conversations with the president. Um, you know, are they subject to any kind of either you know executive privilege or, you know, just a, like a confidentiality um, within the government? I don't know. But I, I think that uh, I think it sounds it, like Comey was willing to roll the dice. It largely at this point doesn't matter because none of that stuff's like fair game in terms of the investigation, which is Comey knew was his goal to begin with. Right. So I don't think he's super worried about getting sued or getting prosecuted or anything like that. Um and yeah, like you said, he said, uh, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. Uh, adding that he wants them all released publicly. He also wants his memos released. Uh, sure, he said to Senator Tom Cotton, an Arkansas Republican. Uh, well, I guess I asked him that. So all of this search for the leaker. <laughs> right, yeah. Go Comey. Let's see, let's see if he actually gets prosecuted like, you know, actual leakers, like, you know, the, and people from the NSA. Um what Comey didn't say about Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions' undisclosed meetings with Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador to the U.S., uh, led Sessions ultimately to recuse himself from the probe at the beginning of March. But Comey had already suspected that Sessions would recuse himself for reasons he said he could not discuss in an open hearing weeks before the Washington Post uncovered Sessions' meetings with Kislyak. Uh, I concluded it made little sense to report it to uh, A.G. Sessions, who we expected would likely either recuse himself from involvement in Russia-related investigations, um, Comey said of the discussions with other top justice officials, on whether they should alert Sessions to Trump's private request of Comey. Uh, our judgment, as I recall, was that he was very close to inevitably going to recuse himself for a variety of reasons. We also were aware of facts that I can't discuss in an open setting that would make his continued engagement in a Russia-related investigation problematic, Comey said of Sessions. And so it was reported later that day that in the closed session that they discussed a third meeting, um, an additional Sessions Russia meeting. Um, I don't know how that got out as part of that closed meeting, but that was one of the things that was discussed. So um, it sounds like they were tracking that all along. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's definitely something interesting going on in those sessions. Um, Comey's testimony did not settle whether or not Trump had committed obstruction of justice. So Democrats and Republicans had plenty to be disappointed with if they were looking for some clear answers on whether Trump's answers amounted to obstruction of justice. Uh, Senator Jim Risch, an Idaho Republican, pressed Comey to state that Trump uh, never, quote, directed Comey to drop the Flynn investigation. But Comey ducked him, saying, not in those words, no. Uh, earlier in his testimony, Comey told Burr he simply would not draw any conclusions regarding obstruction of justice. I don't think it's for me to say whether or not the conversation I had with the president was an effort to obstruct. Uh, I took it as a very disturbing thing, very concerning, but that's a conclusion I'm sure that the special counsel will work towards to try and understand what the intention was there and whether that's an offense, Comey said. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think he's, he's, you know, <laughs> he's saying it without saying it. I, I mean, he's, you know, laying out the facts of the situation and saying he's super uncomfortable about it and describing how he tried to obstruct justice. He just won't say, yeah, he tried to obstruct justice, you know, for, I mean, I think he's being cautious that it, that, that would be a, 
criminal conclusion to come to. He can present, I guess, all of the, the evidence, the case, um, show what he has over to Mueller. And it's, you know, Mueller and then I guess this uh, prosecutor that he's uh, now working with will have to determine if they have enough evidence there, uh, you know, what they're going to do yeah. next. But Yeah. Um, <laughs> this one I think was the funniest. Comey says Trump is a liar a lot. <laughs> Uh, Comey used his opening statement Thursday to detail the reasons why he believed that the president was a liar, and then uh, throughout his testimony, countered Trump's accounts regularly. So yeah, that, that was another big takeaway, is that he just constantly, constantly talked about how Trump was, and I don't know that he used the phrase liar, but he he, he painted a picture of him. They would um, ask him, you know, they would play a statement, is this accurate? No. Is, you know, is this accurate? No. So he countered <laughs> him multiple times. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, that's still obviously in its infancy, and um, we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, it was amazing to me walking away from that, though. I, I read conservative commentary on it, and, and I read commentary from the left, and it appears to me that both sides walked away with completely different conclusions. There were people on the <laughs> left jumping to, we have it, you know, it's a sealed case, it's a done deal, and then people on the right going, look, he's vindicated, he's completely innocent. It's like... Oh my goodness! When we really, really do have two different planets, yeah. right? Because right. I two mean, honestly, Americas, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, we didn't learn anything we didn't kind of know already from the leaked memo. So it's not like we got some bombshell piece of info. It's just a good step in building the case, I think. Right. Um, Seeing him in person speak to it, I think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> was necessary, but. Yeah, more to come on that. It's going to be crazy to watch. Yeah, and unlike every other fucking news outlet in the world, we can cover other things, which is why we're <laughs> going to move on to uh, an interesting story about uh, sanctions on Iran. Okay, so uh, this is a really interesting story coming out of The Intercept. Bucking Bernie Sanders, Democrats move forward on Iran sanctions after terror attack in Tehran. Uh, in the wake of an alleged ISIS terrorist attack on the Iranian parliament, the U.S. Senate is marking the tragedy with twin resolutions. One, to express condolences. Uh, the second, to move forward on a bill to hit the country with new sanctions. By a vote of 92 to 7, the Senate opened debate on the sanctions resolution Wednesday. But the resolution expressing condolences is still being worked on, one senator said. Really, they couldn't have fucking gotten that one out of the way. <laughs> it's such a joke. <laughs> You could write that in ten, ten seconds. minutes. Yeah. Well, apparently, we'll, we'll get to it. But Trump's statement uh, apparently proves that you can write it in ten minutes, although you probably should not write it in ten minutes. <laughs> Might get something wrong. Um, so, on a day when Iran has been attacked by ISIS by terrorism, now is not the time to go forward with legislation calling for sanctions against Iran. Vermont's independent senator Bernie Sanders said on the floor before the Senate. Uh, did just that. Uh, let's be aware and cognizant that earlier in the... By the way, do you think Trump even knows what the word cognizant means? Like, hundred bucks <laughs> says he absolutely does not know what cognizant means. <laughs> I'm really not sure, but I think they had to pay a lot of money to get him through college and get him that degree. <laughs> yeah, uh, seriously. So, um, so uh, yeah, so Bernie was saying, let us be aware and cognizant that earlier today the people of Iran uh, suffered... Uh, a horrific terror attack in their capital, Tehran. Uh, the vote also came in the face of warnings from former Secretary of State John Kerry that new, a new sanctions bill could imperil the nuclear deal. Um, so it, it's very strange that all the Democrats were really quick to jump on this. Um, 
Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, <clears throat> said that it was still time to move forward. After all, it could be a chance to hit Russia. And now we know exactly why <laughs> that they move forward with this fucking sanction. Uh, I think we have an opportunity on Iran sanctions bill, on the Iran sanctions bill, to amend it to include strong Russia sanctions. I'm determined that we get that done. That's foremost in my mind, said Coons. I appreciate the fact that when the U.S. was attacked on 9-11, Iran expressed concern and solidarity with us. I do think it's important for us to express our condolences to the Iranian people for their uh, being victims of an ISIS uh, attack, and I believe that resolution will be adopted today. It seems like a bit of a mixed message to me uh, to try to combine those two, uh, Sanders was saying. A number of Sanders' Democratic caucus colleagues, including California's Dianne Feinstein uh, and Delaware's Tom Carper, joined him in arguing that the bill should be delayed in the light of the terrorist attack. On her way into the vote, Senator Tammy Baldwin, Democrat from Wisconsin, told The Intercept that she agreed that San with Sanders that it should be delayed, but didn't think that it would be. Uh, she was correct and cast her vote in favor. Uh, so she said that it should be delayed and voted for it anyway. Uh, basically. So, uh, so South Dakota Senator John Thune, a member of the Republican leadership, disagreed. I hope not, he said of the possibility of delay. His further thoughts being cut off by the closing door of an elevator taking him to vote on the measure. Uh, shortly before the vote... I love The Intercept, by the way. The way they write some of these stories is so, like, tongue-in-cheek. Um, shortly before the debate, uh, the vote to end debate on the bill... New York Senator Chuck Schumer, who leads the Senate Democrats, came out and argued forcefully in favor of the sanctions, showing no concern about imperiling the nuclear deal or the terrorist attack. Democrats will vote to advance this bill on the floor because we support, most of us support, the bill, he assured the Senate. Uh, 60 votes are needed to, uh, to achieve cloture and close debate. Only seven senators oppose the cloture vote. Democrats Kristen Gillibrand, uh, Dick Durbin... Harper, Jeff Merkley, Tom Udall, uh, Rand Paul, and Bernie. Um, President Trump added, added insult to injury when the White House released its own statement on the Iranian terror attack on Wednesday. Th by the way, this is so fucked up. The, the, the official White House response. We grieve and pray for the innocent victims of the terrorist attacks in Iran and for the Iranian people who are going through such challenging times, it read. Uh, however, then it pivoted to blaming the victims. We underscore, we underscore that states that sponsor terrorism risk falling victim to the evil that they promote. Two fucking sentences, and one of them was a politicized... These, these <laughs> fucking people are maniacs. It's unbelievable. Um, like, they couldn't wait, no, you, you know, five minutes to, to you know, let them... fucking in the be, ground, yeah. I mean, imagine if after 9-11, if that had been the case. Oh, no, if, I mean... So... Yeah. Yeah, so two things I want to address in this. Um, it This is why people, and, and I know this is a big debate on the left and even among people in the group and uh, in the organization, this is why I think, for me at least, why I'm so against the constant Russia hysteria. Because it's literally having real-world consequences. They use trying to sanction Russia and trying to sanction Iran, who's an ally of Russia, as an excuse to sanction Iran... Uh, the day after they had a terrorist attack for purely political reasons, and this could totally imperil the nuclear deal that we have in place with them that doesn't allow them to enrich uranium for a nuclear weapon. Um, so the Democrats are literally participating in, in, in 
indirectly dismantling the nuclear deal because of their Russia hysteria. So that's I think that for me is why I always talk about the need for level headedness when it comes to this and how, yeah, there's probably something there and it's probably in his financials, but let's not lose sight of it and try to focus only on that because it's having real world consequences. I mean, on top of them ignoring things that are important like healthcare and all these other things, they're using it to justify really stupid decisions like trying to pass these Iran sanctions. Well, I would take it in a different direction, actually. I would take it in the direction of, I think we need to move towards one item, one bill, because this is a pattern and it's on both sides of the aisle where you have one piece of legislation and they try to put something completely unrelated in. And because you need that one thing done so badly, something else gets stuck in it. And, you know, I think we need to move past that situation and and really be clear in legislation um, what people are voting on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's been a problem forever in, in, in Washington. Uh, and I, I don't know how that can be fixed, but I would love to see that fixed because that's gotten a lot of really good bills, you know, tanked and a lot of really bad bills have, or bad amendments have gotten through on seemingly innocuous bills. And you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that was even in there. With Iran, it's complicated because, you know, they are joining in the battle against ISIS, right? Yeah. And so, you know, there's there's some benefit there. And, and again, with the nuclear deal, you know, the U.S. had some game there. I, I agree with Trump that it was probably one of the worst deals ever signed. But, you know, there was there was clear, there was was some benefit there. And um, yeah. just the fact that they had to, they couldn't wait five minutes. They had to put these two things together speaks volumes. Yeah, no, I know. It's, it's really just... Craven and everything about this story is Craven. I just so I just wanted to bring it up because a few people were talking sense on that. Bernie Rand Paul, who usually is actually very good on foreign policy, um, <clears throat> but yeah, we're uh, we're just you know <laughs> digging that trench deeper. And by the way, <laughs> it, it, it was very clear, and they've kind of backed off a little bit. But I, I, I suspect when things die down with uh, other things, they're going to ramp it up again. It's very clear that the administration wants war with with Iran. Like that's the that's the prize to them in the Middle East because back in '06, even uh, Wesley Clark, General Wesley Clark, told a story about how when he was brought in to the Department of Defense, they and told about and this is insane. You guys should look it up if you haven't seen it. Uh, in fact, I might drop the audio in here if I could find it. About ten days after 9/11, I went through the Pentagon and. I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, 
And by that time, we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. The truth is about the Middle East is, had there been no oil there, it would be like Africa. Nobody is threatening to intervene in Africa. The problem is the opposite. We keep asking for people to intervene and stop it. And there's, uh, there's no question that the presence of petroleum throughout the region has sparked great power involvement. Whether that was the specific motivation for the coup or not, I can't tell you, but, but there was definitely, there's always been this attitude that somehow we could intervene and use force. And uh, if you guys are keeping score at home, guess where we're bombing? All of those countries. The only one that we're not bombing is Iran. Yeah. Now, wasn't there some other link to this, like with, uh, I want to say, Rothschild Bank or something else? That... There's a lot of sketchy things about these seven. I mean, th these are also, I think, the seven nations that were on the, the, the travel ban list. But he didn't just, and, you know, Trump did that for obvious reasons. And he excluded people like Saudi Arabia for obvious reasons, you know, being that they're our quote-unquote ally, even though they're the number one state sponsor of terror. But um, this nation, list of seven nations wasn't created by Trump or his administration. That's the, uh, you know, in, in the early 2000s when fucking Dick Cheney and, and Rove and all of them were plotting their their, their master stroke of, of turning the Middle East into a giant tire fire. That was the seven countries they targeted for regime change. And lo and behold, we got two of them during uh, Bush's term and Obama helped them get to the other five. So, Well, when you look at that, you start to realize, uh, you know, does it matter who's president? Because it seems no. like the military industrial complex gets its way regardless that, that there are these machinations or these things, uh, you know, puppet masters behind the scenes that are really controlling everything and you know they they keep us distracted hey look over there you know look yeah. something bright and shiny and meanwhile they continue to to do everything they're doing and to me it says that someone like obama was never going to have the spine to stand up to the military industrial complex mm -hmm. and i don't know who will be able to do that i mean unfortunately i you know there's i i even wonder if bernie could be effective in trying to dismantle that because it's just so powerful and so it, it, it's i mean i don't know the exact percentage but it's an insane amount of our, our 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 annual budget goes towards the military i mean it's it's just clearly not to mention the trillions that are missing from the pentagon I mean, oh yeah well, there's there's so much money that <laughs> billions and trillions of dollars that just goes missing we, we lost like something like nine trillion dollars in iraq just nobody knows where it is there's just like oh <laughs> lost it sorry Really, like nine trillion dollars, like in Iraq, like what? And then they so, say, where, where are we going to get money for free college? <laughs> How are we going to pay for that? How are we going to pay for single payer? <laughs> you, you fairy dusters with your single payer that would cost you know a quarter of what the fucking Iraq war costs. Bullshit. Maybe if we stop giving the military a blank checkbook, you know, yeah. maybe we'd see some results there. So yeah, I mean, and I, I don't know that Obama necessarily came into office with intentions of ramping up in, in the Middle East, but. Clearly, he did not estimate how 
uh, powerful the military-industrial complex is, and it's going to really take somebody, I hope, like a Bernie. Like, you know, you look at someone like Corbyn, and he's, he was so... It's going to take someone who, who genuinely is principled in their stance against war and their stance against interventionism to really want to prioritize that because that's a fight that, like, is is almost impossible to win and fraught with pissing off intelligence agencies and all these other people that, as we're seeing with Trump, can take you down if they want to. So, it, it, Well, this is why someone like Tulsi Gabbard is such a threat. Yes, and, yes, that's um, great. You know, why they're so terrified of her because of her military background, because of her combat experience, and because of her willingness to go over and see for herself and, uh, you know, go against whatever the narrative of the moment is. Um, yeah, that's why you have horrible fucking scumbag opportunists like uh, Howard Dean and Neera Tandon smearing the shit out of Tulsi Gabbard because she's mm-hmm. literally the only one telling us the truth about what's happening in Syria. And they don't want to hear it because that's not, you know, conducive to their narrative or the narrative of, you know, the people that they support and they get money from. So that's, that's the great thing about Tulsi. And, um, yeah, I, I, I really hope she decides to run in 2020 should Bernie decide not to run. Um, because I I think she would make an excellent first woman president. And she is, as you said, maybe the only person that could really get something done on that issue because she can speak to it with, uh, you know, knowledge and uh, experience. So, I mean, that that would be amazing. I think she'd have to make a devil's deal with the Democrats for them to back her in that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they've shown us in recent months that they are even more vile than we thought they were uh, in many <laughs> ways. And they literally will go to any length to uh, crush progressive uprising. To yeah. remain in power. Yeah. AKA people doing what the party actually wants them to do as in like the, the base of the party you know the voters <laughs> can't have any of that god forbid Ugh. um yeah we're <laughs> <laughs> so uh I, I do want to move on there's one more but there's, there's a bernie heavy show today but this was an oh. interesting exchange uh we're still going through confirmation hearings because trump doesn't ever nominate anyone for any of these positions and he complains that the democrats are blocking his nominations well, that was actually the, the other thing I was going to mention just real quick on the other story was that's part of what happens when you have a State Department that's empty yeah. <laughs> is you have situations like that, um, you know, where every every major I mean, FEMA is fucking empty right now going into hurricane season, which is a disaster. I mean, Noah, you know, the National Oceanographic, I, I don't know what the hell knows. And I can only assume that the Republicans are going to say, you know, after it's all done, look, you know, we can we can survive fine without all these roles. But it, no one is really marking all of the, you know, the ways in which things are being destroyed. There's and, so many um, little things we're never going to notice for like 30 years down the line. We're going to be like, oh, my God, look at the long term damage they did to all these industries and all of these communities. And Oh, uh, my God. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I want to play a clip for you guys uh, of an exchange that Bernie had with the. Uh, Office of Management and Budget Director, the potential Office of Management and Budget Director. Um, what the hell is his name? Vote. Uh, Russell Vote. yes. Um, yeah, so he had an exchange with Russell Vote, and I'm going to play that for you guys, and we're going to come back and talk about it, because it's pretty interesting. There, um, 
their letter states, and I quote, we write to express our deep concerns about the nomination of Russell Vogt to the position of Deputy Director of the White House Office of Management and Budget. Mr. Vogt has denigrated American Muslims and the Muslim faith. His writings demonstrate a clear hostility to religious pluralism and freedom that disqualify him for any appointment, including that of Deputy Director of the OMD. So, for the record. In the piece that I referred to that you wrote for a publication called Resurgent, you wrote, Muslim, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned, end of quote. Do you believe, do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic? Absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian, and I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. Uh, that post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And again, I apologize. I do forgive me. I, we just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? Again, Senator, I'm a Christian, and I wrote that piece. Well, what does that say? The statement of faith of Wheaton. I understand that. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand condemned too? Senator, I'm a Christian. I, I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that, that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. And do you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God, because they've rejected Jesus Christ the Son and they stand condemned? Do you think that's respectful of other religions? Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly with regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee um, is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no. This fucking guy. I mean, <laughs> where, do they, where does he find these people? The funny part is, I mean, the statement, right, it has nothing to do with the job he's going to do. It, it really, I mean, who even cares about this? You know, it's a tiny budget committee role. But just the absurdity of it and the reality is that there's a big portion of this country that is you know applauding um the things that he said um you know agrees wholeheartedly with it and it's it's so troubling i mean i, I love that that bernie called him out for it um and and <laughs> interrupted him and really went in there and yeah and i mean other people you know attacked him on his on his shadiness in terms of financials but um just just his character i mean the fact that he literally is this this arrogant that he that he would write something like that about other people like and uh, i don't know where the fuck they find these people like i really don't i i, well, I, I yeah. wish 
I wish for once, like when anyone was saying things like that, like I wish Bernie would be like, "What about atheists? What about atheists?" So they could, <laughs> but not, you know, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not asking for miracles here. I know it's baby steps, but but I, I that was great. I mean, I you know, Bernie just, I, I think he was so incredulous that this maniac was was being considered for a position. He's like, "Wow, I, I got." I say really something. do think that he was speechless at the end. He was trying to find words to say you know, where the hell did you find this nut job? And it was just like, I don't think he's right for this job kind of deal. <laughs> like he couldn't even put words together. He was so dumbfounded. Yeah. And, but you know, this is a theme in the Trump administration. It's either brazenly, disgustingly corrupt or super religious or stupid. I mean, Ben Carson. Well, I kinda, was going to bring that up. Yeah. Ben Carson. Kind of fits and... all three. He's like the, he's like the middle of the Venn diagram of all three of those. <laughs> and Betsy DeVos. I yeah. mean, you Actually, know, her whole also. Yeah. agenda of, you know, furthering God's kingdom by diverting all the funds from, from public schools into religious schools. I mean, that's the, that's the agenda in addition to, you know, giving yep. the wealthy tax breaks. You go back to what happened to which Democrats separation. are all for. Well, a lot of Democrats are all for, by the way, including Cory Booker. <laughs> Booker, who is like her BFF and used to speak at her annual dinners until he was like, "Oh, maybe this is not a good look for me," considering she's now going to be uh, the Secretary of Education. Well, um, but yeah, the he's, separation he's of church and state. Where did where did it go? How did we get to this place where public money? can go to a religious school. I, I don't even understand how that's legal or why there hasn't been uh, a challenge to that yet. I think, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's shown that if you elect enough zealots and nut jobs, they literally can pass any law they want. And it's, it, it's, it's horrible. But it, it also goes back to Democrats having lost 11,000 seats. 11, I'm sorry, not 11,000. It feels like 11,000. 11, <laughs> 11 no, million seats. Yeah, no, really. <laughs> Uh, 1,100 seats in the last nine years. Uh, so when you lose that badly, you're going to get a lot of shitty legislation. And if you don't see that you as a party are dying and you need to change your ways, this shit's going to keep happening. And if you keep trying to monkey wrench any kind of progressive change within your party and stamp out any kind of young progressives coming up through your party for bullshit reasons, and I'm just, you know, spitballing, I'm not talking about anything in specific here, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a bad time for you. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to see horrible legislation passed that, and you know, honestly, the, a lot of the people in the Democratic establishment, I think, don't really give a shit because they, you know, they got <laughs> theirs, they have their money, they're, they have their jobs, you know, the near tendons of the world, do you think she gives a shit that money is being funneled into public into private school she probably is celebrates that you know the fucking head of the center for american progress yeah um, well and when you see that the party is in trouble like that and you look bigger picture i, I can kind of understand this this concept of you know hillary clinton talked about that the dnc was broke right so if the dnc <laughs> is broke she's she's injecting money into it this is a party that's lost all of these seats you can kind of understand some of the dem exit people saying you know what Let's just cut it off. Let's cut off its blood supply completely and kill it and go to something new. Because if yeah. they're not going to listen, then let's just, you know, put the final nail in the coffin and and go the other way. I mean, I understand the other side of it, too. You know, the people that, that really want to fix it. But if it seems that the party has no appetite for it, what choice do you have? Well, I think and I, I mean, and Sam's one of the people who, who thinks that it's fixable. And I, and I think right. it's 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 not even necessarily that we think it's fixable, but 
it the it's so the institutional advantages from the two parties are so great right now that they literally make it impossible uh, to overthrow them and to right. to, to get uh, a seat at the table. But from the presidential level, right on down, yeah, yeah. all the way down to in a lot of states to in every direction. I mean, in New York alone, I mean that we have such. I mean, you know, Democrats talk about how Republicans do voter suppression. Nobody does voter suppression like the corporate Democrats. I mean, in New York. <laughs> You have to be registered with the Democratic Party for six months to vote in the in the primary. You cannot vote if you're an independent. I mean, you know, let alone if you're a Republican. You can't even vote if you're an independent. You have to actually be a registered Democrat to vote in the primary. So I go know. back and forth on that issue. Part of me understands Democrats saying, "Look, if you're not a member of the party, you know, do you, should you really have a voice?" You well, know, legally, part of it. They're allowed to do it, but I just think it's so underhanded and, and antithetical to democracy to say independents can't vote in primaries because so many people are do identify as Democrats, and you're just turning those people off to your party forever by not letting them participate in the democratic process. Yeah, I registered as a Dem just so I could vote for Bernie. I mean, yeah, me I was an independent before that. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's unfortunate. Um, so and, in a way, that gave them an opportunity to uh, to court me a little bit. Not that they have. <laughs> yeah. No, well, they 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 think if they get a hold of Bernie's email list, miraculously, all of their their horrible <laughs> problems will be solved and their corruption will no longer be an issue. That list I, is worthless without the man behind it. <laughs> thing, I, I really want to know what they think they're going to get from that list. Like, if we start getting emails from fucking, you know, uh, Tom Perez being like, hey, everybody, I just wanted to get in touch with you and really, uh, you know, like, what, what do they think? We're, like, we're going to give that fucker money? Of course not. Like, come on. What, what, do you, what do you people think is going on? Even if he came out and word for word read like something Bernie had said in the past, <laughs> can you imagine you would just look at him and go, what are you talking about? Yeah, no, really. <sighs> um, <laughs> I fucking hate Tom Press. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. You know what? Politics such a wet is so noodle. Uh, but, exhausting yeah. right now. Just all of it. Um, I have moments where I have to take breaks and I actually went back to House of Cards for a little while and <laughs> And, Actually, and, that was lighter than what's going on in American politics right now. Yeah. And I got to say, being, you know, with, with Sam's, like, his whole thing and his campaign or his exploratory campaign, uh, I, we see it up close. I mean, it's even more fucked up than we thought it was. So uh, it's 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 a tough I, – I understand why people hate politics after, after being so close to it. Uh, I still want to stick around and try to affect change because I think that we're the only, you know, people that can do it, our generation and people like yeah. us. Um, because the uh, boomers seem to have given up completely, by and large. I mean, there, you know, there are plenty of uh, boomers in our organization and, like, plenty of them that are working. They're for still in it for the pot legalization, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there, got them there. <laughs> there are plenty of citizens who are, who are uh, citizen boomers who are working towards progressive change. But by and large, any kind of people in the establishment or in the party orthodoxy have totally given themselves over to that kind of, you know, well, we run centrist the risk Blairism after, and Clintonism. And, after the primary that we had and, you know, the feelings about what happened with Bernie there is a real risk of millennials just turning away. And, you know, a lot of people that, that became engaged because of Bernie of people turning away and saying, that's it. It's rigged. You know, why bother? Um, so, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people are trying to keep that movement together, but, um, uh, 
we're going to have to be able to prove some successes there and that we really can affect change because a lot of people feel like, I mean, on Twitter, you know, all this discussion of whether it's votes being rigged or voting systems being messed with and people's parties being changed, all the stuff that happened in New York, they're showing more and more evidence uh, of it. So very sketchy, the whole thing. Um, and you know, the, um, and the party unfortunately has gone further right and more towards corruption since that loss. It's amazing to me that they don't, they doubled down. Yeah. They, yeah, they tripled down and they don't even, <laughs> not even from a callous, like, oh, maybe we should throw them a bone so they don't totally revolt on us. They're so, they're, their hubris is so large and they're, they're, they're so arrogant that they don't see that they're literally making the situation a thousand times worse and, you know, radicalizing a generation of young voters who not only want to fight Republicans, but want to see the Democratic Party destroyed because it's almost a dead party at this point. I mean, you think running against Trump or up against Trump, who's has record low popularity numbers, that the Democrats would be, you know, expanding rapidly, that people would be pouring into the party. Their numbers are the lowest they've been in years. So what does that tell you about this fucking terrible party that their numbers are, are dipping in the age of Trump? Yeah, such an opportunity that they have. I mean, gosh, even Pelosi trying to, to embrace the, the summer of resistance and all of that. And yet <laughs> numbers of Democratic socialists are rising. Are, yeah, the DSA is doing great. I mean, because yeah. people aren't stupid. People know that these these people are full of shit, the Pelosi's of the world and the Schumer's and all these people who are claiming that they are fighting and they're the resistance. And, you know, they, they're so we, we see through them. So. The second that Pelosi said they didn't need to do anything different, I mean, <laughs> that was when I was kind of close to done. <laughs> yeah, no, that and that and when she was talking to Trevor Hill on uh, CNN, and he asked her that like really you know well worded and thought out question about how millennials are embracing socialism, and we understand that capitalism is not the catch all and the be all end all of running a society. And then she's like, oh, we're, we're, we're capitalists. That's just the way it. <laughs> Like she, but, she, but I think generationally, there really is a difference. I mean, I think about books that we were given, you know, uh, you know, 1984 and Animal Farm. And you know, there was a lot of uh, stuff pushed into us about the evils of communism and, and you know, government, all this stuff. So I don't know that lefty the younger generation. Yeah. And I don't know <laughs> that the younger generation gets that, you know, the way that, um, yeah, it's different now. Yeah, no, I mean, that's great. And I, you know, and I, I wonder if our parents' generations even were reading those sorts of things. Um, they definitely made sure we did. <laughs> yeah, I know. The smart ones who got into teaching made sure that we were aware of what the hell their generation <laughs> did to the fucking world. Well, you know, the Republicans would say that's just the uh, the lefty yeah. agenda <laughs> in universities and all that. <laughs> Liberal teachers and indoctrinating our children and whatnot. Yes. Um, but yeah, good. Uh, more of that. <laughs> so, oh, but one more thing I wanted to mention about that Bernie, uh, the thing. So, uh, it, it appears to me that the all-out smear against Bernie is on from from the Hillary camp and the establishment because immediately after that, and anyone that watches that says, "Oh my God, that was awesome!" He totally fucking took down that Islamophobe and proved what a hypocrite he was. Uh, Emma Green, writing for the Atlantic, took a different path on this one uh she wrote an article entitled bernie sanders religious test for Chris, uh, for christians in public office <sighs> <laughs> so apparently 
Um, she thought that he was uh, administering a religious test for this fucking maniac that he was. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to highlight a couple key things from the from her article because it's just a piece of fucking dog shit. Um, completely twist it. Yeah, of I mean, course. completely. <laughs> article Article six of the U.S. Constitution states that no religious test shall ever be required as qualification to any office or public trust uh, under the United States. On Wednesday. Senator Bernie Sanders flirted with boundaries of this rule during a confirmation hearing for Russell Vote, President Trump's nominee for Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, Sanders took issue with a peace vote wrote in January 2016 about a fight in the nominee's alma mater, Wheaton College. The Christian school uh, had fired a political science professor, Larisha Hawkins, for a Facebook post intended to express solidarity with Muslims, because I guess you can't have any of that. God forbid, solidarity, <laughs> fucking fireable offense. Uh, Vought, Vote disagreed with uh, Hawkins' post and defended the school in an article to the conservative website The Resurgent. Um, that sounds like neo-Nazi. I, I know it's not, <laughs> but that sounds super fucking sketchy. Uh, during the hearing, Sanders repeatedly quoted one passage that he found particularly objectionable. Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ the Son and they stand condemned. This guy is like an academic working at a school, and this is the kind of shit that he was writing. Um, condemned. Yeah. Damned to the fires of hell. <laughs> so then she recaps the exchange, and then she says, uh, this exchange shows just how tense the political environment under Trump has become, but it's also evidence of the danger of using religion to deem someone unfit to serve in government. No, it's not. No, it's fucking not. You're a fucking hack. Like, Emma Green, you are a fucking hack journalist. And I, I, I was like, oh, this lady must be a right winger. No, huge Hillary fan, huge Hillary supporter. She also is of super. Of course, because they're going to go against Bernie. So yeah. yeah. So I was like, clearly she has an ulterior motive. And and I also will, to her credit or whatever, say that she writes a lot of articles about why the Democrats don't embrace religion enough. So she's clearly like a religious like zealot, but right. also she's a huge Hillary fan. So they probably are like, oh, perfect. She's perfect for this. Let's. <laughs> Let's get the hit piece out through her because um, well, I have had a lot of conversation in social media lately with people of other faiths who have been talking about that Christianity is the de facto, you know, the default religion in this country and how much discrimination, how much Christian privilege there is and how much discrimination people of other religions face. And, and what's funny about it is that then the Christians take that on as though they're being persecuted, as though there is a war on Christianity, when in fact... It's a war on Christmas, is... LaDonna. It's a war on Christmas. <laughs> when all it is is people saying, you know, there are other religions, there are you know, things we need to respect. And you know, going back to John Adams, one of the founding fathers, the government of the U.S. is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. I mean, yep. they flat out said it Jefferson back then. And yet... Hamilton said they all said it because they knew that people would twist it and try to turn us into a theology, which is the exact reason they were, you know, fleeing England in the first place. Not them, but the original settlers fleed England right. in the first place. Um, yeah, and it's crazy to me that in 2017 we're still having this, not debate, but this this conversation. Um, these fucking people. I, I, do, <laughs> I do tend to think that this is more uh, Hillary's people being like, hey, come down a little bit. Look, you know, like... I mean, this, you know, just goes back to the, during the primaries, Washington Post running 16 negative ads about Bernie Sanders in 16 hours. 
there was another one recently. It was as though there was another wave. Um, there, well, but, there has been since since yeah. post Unity tour. After he made Tom Perez look like a fucking joke because he is a fucking <laughs> joke, um, there was a huge wave of of Hillary uh, partisans doing attack articles about Bernie and how Bernie Sanders is acting weird and why is Bernie being so crazy and why like 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 really salacious like weird fucking articles about like well and I couldn't figure out if that was because they were reacting to the calls that, that Hillary needed to go back to the woods and kind of disappear for a while, or if it was because she was trying to reappear. And, oh, and so they were, you know, thought they were battling that, but it, it just, fucking demon reappearing, it continues the divisiveness, the division in the progressive community, focusing on the past, focusing on, you know, past races and um, not looking ahead for people that yeah. can unify all of us. And I just want anyone listening being like, why are you still talking about the primaries? It's not that we want to. Hillary Clinton is literally in an unprecedented manner, like inserting herself back into the public eye and trying to wrestle control of the party away from the the progressive uprising, which is the only thing keeping the party afloat right now, by the way. (laughs) She, I mean, no other person who lost the, the presidency has been in the public eye like she's been. I mean, Mitt Romney went disappeared after he lost. You know, McCain. Well, McCain well, was in the Senate. Hillary's I'll, fundraising ability, right, it is still there. It's still a force, and so now Stronger Together is supporting groups like Run for Something, Indivisible. That money is being injected into all those groups. Um, which is unfortunate because then a lot of progressives have to question whether they can be a part of those groups or not, or whether they're going to be overtaken by, uh, you know, Hillary's decision-making and establishment people. Yeah. I mean, Stronger Together itself is a dark money organization. We don't know where their funding is coming from because they, they filed in a way that they don't have to disclose their donors. And she says she's going to support primary challenges. You think she's going to be supporting primary challenges, uh, to establishment people like Diane Feinstein, <laughs> I don't fucking think so. She's gonna be she's tra- gonna support McCaskill. <laughs> yeah, no, she's gonna, but she's gonna be supporting primary challenges to actual progressives like Tulsi right. Gabbard, and she's going to be giving money to people getting primaried like the Nancy Pelosi's and Diane Feinstein's of the world, uh, and Elizabeth Warren. Apparently, Elizabeth Warren had a uh, has a primary challenger now. I don't know if it's gonna, you know. Everyone's got one. I don't know if it's going to necessarily be. Was that the owner of that sports team, or who was that? No, no, she, she just some dude. He, uh, oh. Like some, I don't know that he's necessarily a, a figure in politics before, but um, I saw something about him, you know, challenging her. I don't know that that'll go anywhere, but um, but th- but certainly Stephen Jaffe has a very good chance, I think, of taking down Pelosi, which would be amazing for the progressive cause. Uh, and amazing. That would be a coup. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be a coup, and and you know, it's not just the one seat that we'd be taking uh, in the house, it's such a message to send to the establishment that your quote unquote leader is not safe because she represents everything that's wrong with the party right now. Right. If we could get rid of her and get an actual progressive in there, I mean, that would just be amazing for the party. Uh, I used to adore Elizabeth Warren. I mean, adore her. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate the way that um, some of the decisions that she's made, I think that she really did look at the landscape, you know, look at the political realities and she made some calculations that uh, in the long term I disagree with. I understand, you know, she's one of the uh, 
primary voices out there speaking out against the big banks and breaking them up. She's a fantastic prosecutor when it comes to, you know, uh, going against people, but just, I think, (laughs) I think she, in a lot of ways is there policy wise. She just has probably the worst people around her for the most part. I mean, like her advisors, I think, uh, they're probably more from the Pelosi camp than the, uh, and and she's, and she, I think she's very worried and maybe for good reason. Cause I mean, it's clear that the party has no problem using, you know, borderline thuggish tactics to get, uh, their way and to suppress any kind of progressive uprising within the party. So, you know, she's, she's obviously thinking about running in 2020 and maybe she's just really trying to shore up her support. Um, but I think it's really going to backfire on her because progressives, unfortunately, don't trust her anymore. And no, I, I mean, and I she can't would really have been my dream them. ticket. Yeah, yeah, back when, you know, before she backed Hillary, she would have been my dream ticket with Bernie. And then, you know, series yeah. of decisions, not just the Hillary one, but other things. It's like she's not the same person. No, it's kind of like this, the shift McCain made. Yeah, it's really disappointing because I used to love Elizabeth Warren. I thought she was, you know, and I still think she's great on Wall Street, but um, I don't have confidence right now with the people that she's listening to and with the way that she's been, you know, voting. And, and, you know, even like her interview with TYT, I I just was so disappointed (laughs) with her. I mean, that was tone deaf. Yeah, yeah, so tone deaf. (laughs) I don't have confidence that she's going to stand up to those people if she gets elected and actually try to push for these changes. I think it would be largely Obama. Yeah. 2.0. But I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I, you know, I I would, I'd certainly be more inclined to support her than I would be to support Hillary Clinton or somebody like that. uh, Right. Or Pelosi. Yeah. Economically, she's where we want to be. I mean, she does. And she does. I will give her credit in that, she is one of the lone senators voicing support for the more progressive uh, amendments that Bernie is putting forth, like the $15 minimum wage. She said she would support universal health care. So, uh, you yeah, know, I think if you look at the Dementor model, she she would be one of the people leading it in the sense of, you know, trying to affect change within the party. But but, you know, calculating the realities of the party. Yeah. So, you know, that'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Um you know, while we're talking about the establishment and Hillary, I do have one more uh, super, super insane story <laughs> that you guys may or may not have heard about because, of course, no mainstream media covered it. And uh, TYT didn't even cover it, even though they're, you know, <laughs> the independent progressive media. Uh, I guess it slipped through the cracks. but um, Not on Twitter. <laughs> not on Twitter. And not even in Newsweek. This is a Newsweek. This is like a legit publication. So even they, they got this. Um so this is an article from Newsweek. Uh, Twitter erupts over news that Hillary Clinton used black prison labor while first lady of Arkansas. Uh, Twitter... You would think it was a Breitbart. Uh, yeah, I know, right? I know. Really <laughs> no, it's, it's in her own words. She used, she used slaves. Um, but let's, you know, by the, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, civil rights activists consider prison labor slavery because they literally, in some states, including Arkansas, were paid literally nothing for their time. So they, they literally had, like, slaves working in the big house of, of the fucking governor's mansion in Arkansas. But let me, I'll get into the details of the story. <clears throat> Twitter users have reacted with surprise and fury over excerpts from Hillary Clinton's 1996 book, It Takes a Village. On June 6th, uh, Jeanette Jing, an activist with over 33,000 followers on Twitter, 
who supports Clinton's Democratic opponent, Senator Bernie Sanders, I don't know why that was important to put into the article, but of course, uh, shared two pages of the work in which Clinton reminisces about the black prisoners who worked in the Arkansas governor's mansion that she shared with her husband, Bill Clinton, who led the state from 79 to 81 and 83 to 92. That's weird. Why was it? Maybe he lost an election. I don't know. Um, When we moved in, I was told that using prison labor at the governor's mansion was a long-standing tradition, which kept down costs, Clinton writes. She adds that most of the workers were convicted murderers and that she become fr- she became friendly with, quote, a few of them, African-American men in their 30s who had already served 12 to 18 years uh, of their sentences. Despite her alleged friendships with these men, Clinton tells her readers, we enforced rules strictly and sent back to prison any inmate who broke a rule. Uh, Despite having no psychological qualifications, she later asserts that these men did not have inferior IQs or even an inability to apply moral reasoning, but instead that they may have been, quote, emotional illiterates. Um, I'm going to keep reading, but when I read that, I was like, that reminds me of the scene in Django Unchained, where Leo DiCaprio has, like, the skull of, like, a black guy, and he's doing doing this, like, whole thing about, like, how they're... like like phrenology like she sounds like such yeah. a fucking racist maniac saying those things it, it's it insane. sounded as though well again tone deaf she was actually bragging in this it, that she she's patting herself on the back to be, like for, yeah, to be friends with these murderers like look at me they were black and they were murderers and i you know i befriended them so aren't i wonderful and it's like first of all this is her book. This is her own words. She She's published this. She is. This is not a state secret. This is her out there telling her story and bragging about this. So why anyone, why there's this upheaval when it's her own words? This is not something, you know, uh, she wrote back in high school. This is her book. <laughs> yeah. And this is, and you know, I really wish this, somebody had found this during the, the primaries because this totally shoots her whole bullshit. And it was always bullshit to begin with. Her whole, like, that she's better for the black community than Bernie was. That whole narrative about it was people bullshit. of color. And, and, and it was backed up, unfortunately, by a lot of prominent civil rights leaders like John Lewis, who right. did a really underhanded thing by saying, look, I never saw Bernie during the uh, civil rights. Yeah, okay, did you know every <laughs> single person that was protesting? I think John Lewis did a lot of great things for civil rights, and I absolutely commend him for that, but... That doesn't mean that he is not now, you know, totally ingrained in the establishment and willing to do their bidding. That was um, another political calculation. Everyone thought it was, even yeah. Hillary thought she was going to win. And so they calculated that they needed to smear Bernie, back her. who literally got arrested protesting for civil rights in 1964. <laughs> while we Hillary have Clinton. Photos. We have video. Yeah, we have photos and video while Hillary Clinton was campaigning for Barry fucking Goldwater, who was a segregationist. So. Let's let's tell me again why Hillary Clinton is better for black people and and that you go back to the super predator commentary. You go back to the criminal justice changes that that happened under her husband. All of this, and yet, yeah, the narrative that that somehow she, you know, Clinton was the first black president, and and they're better for people of color. It blows my mind. It's such bullshit. And, the, and them gutting welfare while they were in there and then passing the trade. But, all right, so there's actually a good bit of that detailed in this article. Um, Clinton makes no mention of whether the men received any money for working for her and her husband. They didn't, because Arkansas has a law against paying prisoners for that I'm kind sure of she didn't even check into that. No, account. she probably couldn't give two shits. 
A 2016 article from Mother Jones notes that when it comes to prison labor, some states, including Texas, Arkansas, and Georgia, do not pay inmates at all. Uh, one, on Twitter, Jing wrote that uh, Hillary Clinton was a direct participant in what uh, someone correctly described as modern slavery. Jing, who also refers to a June 5th Twitter conversation about the Clintons' use of uh, prison labor from, uh, from Samuel Sinyangwe, an activist, uh, data scientist, and policy analyst. Uh, in a string of tweets, Sing Yangwei talks about his experience of visiting the Louisiana state legislature and finding black prisoners serving white lawmakers for free. Sing Yangwei adds that the state has the world's highest incarceration rate, with black people making up 66% of the prison population. By comparison, black people make up 32% of Louisiana's total population. So there's so, it, it's insane how disproportionate that prison population is to the actual population. Um, he goes on to note that prisoners working in the state legislature are serving people who support laws like, um, so who support laws that make Louisiana the hardest state to hold police accountable within. Like in Arkansas, Sing Yangwei adds, uh, some of Louisiana's prisoners work at the governor's mansion. Uh, in her book, Clinton tried to soften the reality of unpaid, unpaid black men serving a wealthy white woman. <laughs> but uh, but in 1996, the year her book came out, that uh, was also the year that she made a speech in New Hampshire in support of her husband's controversial 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, you know, otherwise known as the Crime Bill. Um, of the legislation, which critics say ramped up mass incarceration dis and disproportionately affected African Americans... Uh, and we'd have stats on that. Right. Clinton said that, uh, quote, we also have to have an organized effort against gangs. They're often the kinds of kids that are called super predators, no conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. Uh, Clinton has since apologized for using that term and admits that parts of the 94 bill were a mistake. Which is maybe the only admission of guilt or uh, error that <laughs> she'll ever, ever get out of her mouth. Um, the resurfacing how, how of her, dehumanizing that statement is. It's so I mean, dehumanizing. I mean, it, it's so, and to watch her make it, I mean, I, you know, I've seen that video before. It's just how anyone can think that she should have been the Democratic nominee for a party <laughs> of, of, of a, 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 you know, a left party, a liberal party is insane to me. They thought she'd get some of the racist Republicans, I guess. I don't know. Uh, the resurfacing of her book's extract has dragged Clinton's record on racial equality into the spotlight. Despite her reaching out to the black community during her 2008 and 2016 bids for the presidency, she actively supported it and lobbied for her husband while more and more black people were sent to prison. Though Toni Morrison named Bill Clinton the country's first black president, uh, under his watch there was a 100 to 1 gram to gram sentencing disparity between people in prison for the powdered cocaine possession and those in prison for crack cocaine. That's fucking nuts. 100 to 1 people... 101 gram-to-gram sentencing. So people were getting sentenced at the same rate for one gram of crack as they were for 100 grams of cocaine, which is generally a rich, you know, white people's drug as opposed to right. poor black people's drug. Uh, at the same, at that time, a crack ep uh, epidemic was sweeping America's black community. Um, <clears throat> and isn't it funny that now that uh, heroin is sweeping the white community that we're revisiting all the sentencing or, you know, 
trying to lighten it. I mean, not Sessions, but, you know, most other lawmakers want to change things and legalize weed and all of this stuff because now it's hit the white communities. Isn't that amazing? It's it's hit white communities and it's hit rural white communities who typically vote Republicans. So now they're like, oh, my God, this is an outrage. How can we like they're just (laughs) notice like they're just noticing these draconian laws that that Clinton passed in the 90s. It's like, yeah, dude. You know, black community is super aware of this for a long fucking time. Like, <laughs> this is not news to them. Um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, and this is not to bring it up to rehash it or to bash Hillary. The reason this is coming up is because she refuses to let go of her, her death grip on the party. Her and her ilk, you know, the corporate Democrats, they have this death grip on the party and they refuse to let the party move forward with the the will of the of the base which is you know the the millennials who want to see it go in an actual progressive direction and move away from wall street and goldman sachs and fracking which she still fucking supports and tried to spread throughout the world and all these other horrible things that we would associate with the republicans typically but this is why i love twitter and why i love social media because a story like this that the mainstream media would never cover never know twitter goes nuts and you know one of the tweets haven't been super online today but i see that uh checks again hillary clinton had slaves (laughs) whoops Well, it's okay because they were quote some of the good ones yeah i mean i really i mean she's seriously i mean I, i just keep thinking of that scene and Django Unchained, where, where Leo DiCaprio is, like, trying to explain... Cause, have you ever seen that movie? Uh-huh. Oh, okay, so, like, he's a slave owner in that movie, right? He, like, he like owns a plantation. Um, and he's trying to, like, impress his dinner guests, which includes Jamie Foxx, but who's, like, trying to, you know, who wants to get his wife out of the plantation, basically. So he's, like, right. pretending to be a slaver, even though he's he's trying to, uh, like, barter her passage out of there. And he and he and he starts explaining. He pulls out a skull of like his old like black servant, and he's like explaining like how different ridges in his in, in his skull uh, make make black people more submissive, and how it's like genetic. It's this old sign, and like it's it's it's, it's insane scene. And but I and I did research on it, and it's actually a real pseudoscience that existed in like the, phrenology. Yeah, yeah, phrenology. She sounds like she's like she's almost like like espousing like phrenology when she's talking about how they were emotionally illiterate and like all this shit i'm like <laughs> well and like that they had tracked a certain kind that were the good ones the one-time murderers were the best security risks they you know not the not the robbers but the, the one-time murderers yeah. <laughs> like they had figured it out this one group <laughs> of people we can get them to serve us for nothing oh my god these fucking people it's Clinton you know, need to go away forever <laughs> i've had conversation with with trump supporters and, and people who had actually done time and talked about um, you know, this, uh, people that go out and, and work and what I considered, uh, you know, to be slave wages, really. I mean, you know, getting paid a dollar 20 a day for yeah. me, that's not getting paid at all. And, you know, the defense of it was that, that they wanted to, that they wanted to be out, that being out was better than, you know, being in, in jail. It was, you know, a, considered a privilege to be out and work and that they were happy to be able to earn money and that kind of thing. But to me, it's like, it doesn't matter. You've got someone imprisoned. They they may be choosing it, but you're paying them nothing. Yeah. So, but, and to that's me, that's, that, that's an, ex- <laughs> an extension of just us wholly giving ourselves over to corporate America. Because right. most of these are private prisons, and they use this labor as essentially slave labor to offset costs of actually paying people living wages to produce goods and to 
provide services and we just kind of ignore it or don't even think about it but it's it's just it's the same as it's the same as those trade bills that give away jobs to nations that pay people you know pennies a day for their work it's the same shit it's like well and then you have to connect sessions and trying to you know enforce these mandatory minimums again you know forcing u.s attorneys to do that you have to connect that to the prison complex of for-profit prisons and that Mm. they need their supply of prisoners to go in because these corporations they need their labor they need their cheap labor we can't compete with china or whoever else you know yeah oh that was the other one that commentary from uh that Republican candidate about the livable wage this week. <laughs> yeah, I don't support. I don't support a, li- a livable <laughs> wage. And I know that's not what she meant to say, but that's what yeah. she was thinking. These that two- was a Freudian slip. <laughs> how, how can we lose to these fucking maniacs? Like that's that's what I always think when I see stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but I think the answer is that twenty seconds later, when they were talking about single payer, John Ossoff called single payer a politicized issue. Um, because apparently people wanting everyone to have healthcare is a politicized issue and not a basic <laughs> fucking human right and a, a total, you know, human rights violation that we're not already there. Whatever, Everything air know. is politicized. Everything is water. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I can't blame them because that's apparently what you have to do to get elected and to get support from the party. Uh, <sighs> this is why I'll never run for office. <laughs> I've been thinking about running locally. I mean, I you know, I, I, if we got to start somewhere, and, and if we're going to be shut out at the national level, I don't think that they can fight us everywhere. They can't fight us at the state level or at the local county level as much as they can on the on the national level. So, and that may be where things get done. More things like campaign finance reform and other stuff. Um, you know, until the states overrule them, it seems like more and more uh, counties are are trying to enact stuff like that. So. Yeah, and I mean, it's unfortunate that we have to fight our own fucking party to do this stuff that they should be supporting <laughs> to begin with, but, you know, I, I'm ready to do it. I, I feel reinvigorated. I really am in, like, a smash the establishment kind of mood, so... Go. I'll support you. I like to be the, the person in the background. I'll write the speeches it. and do all the other stuff. Well, no, hey, we're all doing it. We're You know, the, all the stuff we're doing in our voice, <clears throat> and if you guys want to help us out, by the way, ourvoiceinitiative.org. You can go there, read about us, read about what we're doing, uh, read the platform, and uh, volunteer with us. We need help of all kinds. Yeah. We need coders. We need designers. We need, I mean, social media gurus. Any talent that you have, we probably need it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, check us out there. Um, again, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, all that fun stuff. Uh, and be sure to join us next week. Uh, Saturday mornings, our episode usually drops. And, uh, yeah, Aldana, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'll see you guys next week.